And welcome back to the EG Way podcast. This is the second one of the new year. If you missed the last one, we're going to say Happy New Year again. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! And welcome to January. We hope you're having a dry January. If you're not, we hope you're having a good January. And, uh, you know, we're doing our January challenge. That's uh, 2,020 minutes of exercise will be done by the whole of the EG team. So far, it's only Chris. Um, do find him on Strava and see if you can race him uh, on his route around Ipswich. Uh, contact us on Twitter for more of that. That's at EG Limited. So, joining us this week, we have, uh, again, we have Tim Nash, who is a DevOps consultant. Hello there. And co-founder and CEO, Chris Pont. Good morning. Also, co-founder and CTO, John Nicholson. Good morning. And last but definitely not least, uh, Alan Jackson, the chief Operating officer, soon to be global head of operations, I hear. I think global operations director sounds better. But... Global operations director, Alan Jackson. Because it sort of comes back to God. I think <laughs> junior vice president of global <laughs> operations. Good morning, everyone. I'm Andrew Walker. I'm a freelance writer. I am an old friend of EG's and I'm passionate about all things digital. Uh, I also worked out from the last series of Stranger Things how to get into buildings through the air conditioning vents. And that's why I'm still here. Hey, fellas. Well, they're only—they're not really laughing because, <laughs> because someone got in through the vents and stuff has been going missing. <laughs> I really wondered where you were going. <laughs> we're back this week talking uh, more about DevOps. And if you haven't heard the last podcast, you can go and download it now and listen to it. We talked a lot about what DevOps is and the way it's changing the digital operations that underpin pretty much every business. And I, w- I want to start this question with Tim because you're a consultant, which means I should consult you, uh, because I've got this very painful elbow, and I was... No. <laughs> oh, the RSI jokes. It's, if, only, if only it wasn't a, real. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, the question I'm going to ask Tim is, automation, uh, process automation, plays a big part in DevOps, but... A lot of people get worried when they think about automation because they think it's going to be replacing humans with robots. Presumably, replacing humans with robots isn't a part of DevOps. Uh, well, it kind of is in a way. Uh, DevOps is a re- uh, has automation as a repeating theme uh, throughout several uh, different parts of it. So uh, in order to deliver things as quickly as possible, you need to be able to test uh, things to check that you haven't broken everything, uh, to check that things are working as, as they should. Uh, and the, the most efficient way of, of doing that is via automation. Uh, then moving further down the, the pipeline, when you come to deploy your changes into, into production, uh, the most efficient way of, of doing that is via automation. Uh, and then we have companies like Netflix that have introduced this concept of introducing organized chaos uh, to their, their production platforms in order to test uh, whether how, how it responds to failure, because failure is, let's face it, inevitable. Uh, they, they are automating failure of their systems to check that they are resilient and uh, still carry on uh, providing the service that they're designed to do. That's, I hadn't heard that before, automating failure. Yes, the cha- chaos monkey. 
Chaos, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Come on, you've got to tell us more about that. That's amazing. They have a whole army of of Chaos. Uh, Chaos Monkey is is one of their services that goes goes through uh, their environments and uh, randomly, I think it it kills uh, instances or uh, of, uh, I think they're AWS based, so it kills instances uh, that are running and and generally uh, breaks things uh, to check that service uh, still carries on. Wow. I mean, it does still carry on because, as you, as you know, I've seen the new season of Stranger Things at last and I've, I've learned a great deal about burglary from it. So, John, question I want to ask you because there is an element then that comes from this. Presumably, we're talking about replacing dull, repetitive tasks with automation. We're not talking about computers that, you know, replace devs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the key point is there are numerous tasks in traditional IT that are tedious, repetitive, um, and prone to failure because of how tedious they are. People lose concentration. Um, uh, One example, a previous project that we did automate, we had a 110-page release note that had to be run through manually by someone to deploy this application. That deployment would take probably two days at the first pass to get there, and then realistically about a week to understand what steps they'd missed in that 110 pages at some point because it was very hard to understand what had gone wrong at different points uh automating that and that involved automating the environment so the systems it was running on as well as automating the application took a deployment down to 15 minutes when we're talking about these fast deployment cycles the, the automation enables it um, and it doesn't just have to be replacing tests, though it can replace tests, uh, certainly on a regression basis. So change, checking that nothing's changed, it's really valuable. Um, and by regression, we mean looking at the last version of the code and making sure the yeah. next version is compatible. Absolutely. Making sure the functionality that we don't expect to have changed hasn't. I mean, I mean, looking at that regression impact, um, we, we work in an agile fashion here, so we, we run sprints, generally two-week sprints. So we're developing functionality over, over a two-week period, and, and we need to test it and make sure it works. Obviously, the second sprint, we're testing all of the new functionality in sprint two, along with regression testing all of the functionality we built in sprint one, and that's fine. Sprint three, we're, we're, we're testing sprint three and two and one. You imagine you get to sprint number 29, you've got 28 wor- uh, sprints worth of regression to test during that period. You get, you get through that much functionality, you're not going to have the manpower to fully regression test everything. So if you can automate as much as possible, you're then allowing your, um, your testers to actually go and test the stuff that, that they need to and needs a bit more manual input. Yeah, and, and uh, whilst I say it is replacing work that would be traditionally done by, by uh, humans, uh, it's... It's replacing that work and allowing it, freeing them up to do things that humans are very good at, like what happens if I do this, 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 uh, which which is is more difficult to automate, so, uh, and and taking away that that tedious work that uh, takes a long time and is error prone that computers are very good at. And just coming back to John's note on on automating deployments, um, I think that one of the key takeaways there as well is that um, if you can automate. You know, two weeks worth of, of deployment activities into 15 minutes um, it means you don't have emergency releases anymore because those releases go through the same amount of rigor 
that any other release would go through. You know, it's just clicking a button and, and allowing everything to um, to take place, uh, all of those activities that, that roll the software out to whatever environment you're targeting. So it really does put a lot more um, safety and rigor around um, any of your releases. And presumably, if you, you're combining that then with also this Canary model where you release to a small number of users first to check that actually it's working... Um, and for some reason, I'm suddenly thinking, didn't that, presumably TSB, who suffered a major outage last year, they didn't apply the whole no. canary automation process? I mean, can we talk about that? Is it I, a lawsuit? I don't know if we know the details to comment on someone else. I wouldn't dare comment on someone else's project. Probably. I know enough of the details. I've unfortunately been researching major software failures over the last year. Um, Essentially, the software itself was tested in an ongoing fashion. The deployments to a level were automated and happening in an incremental manner. Unfortunately, there's a part of um, automation that is very, very difficult to deal with, and that's actually around data. Moving data between existing systems is a complicated task to get right, particularly if you have to synchronize from one system to another. Um, Data migrations is um, one of Alan's great fears. Um, When it's from a cold system and they want to do it in a big bang, it's very difficult to get right. It's it's, uh, a lot of risk involved. Um, What TSB tried to do is do that over one weekend with, I believe it was uh, 250,000 customers at least. Um, And they all got locked out of their bank accounts. They all got locked out of card transactions. All facilities were lost to them. Um, for some of those customers, it went on for a period of weeks, not just that weekend, as much as that's not spoken about as much. It was a very significant failure. And that's a data migration issue. Presumably then, uh, if you've got your DevOps team balanced and right, and you've got the right automations in place, you would have a different approach to data migration in, already, yeah? There's another ops term we didn't mention at the beginning of the last one, which I don't think, which is data ops, mm. which um, one of our consultants, Brendan, is very fond of, fond of and recently spoke at a Microsoft conference about. Um, so, yeah, it takes the same approach, you know, to, to pushing data, but data ops works more on your day-to-day data requirements, you know, sort of incrementing existing data systems to have more reliable data in them for MIBI and things like that. I think the data migration... Any time you decide to do anything in a one-off big bang, you collect all that risk up, <laughs> you bundle it up, and then you put it all on one moment when you when you push a button or maybe five buttons. And it's I just don't I don't conceive of any other instance in in your life where you would do that as an approach for anything risky. You know, it's just not a great way. Of I have to say though, um, I RBS and NatWest did a merger late noughties early early 2000s where they absolutely nailed it doing it this kind of way there was a literally a a button flick and they did make it work so it can work it's not to say that it can't and there'll be lots of people saying oh that's rubbish it does work um but it's just harder than it needs to be it's you know it's just not the safest way to do things and it's down to that risk yeah absolutely down to the risk we can't uh you, you you can make it work and it will work but there's a high chance in comparison to another way that it may not. Yeah. I mean, looking at the high-risk um, uh, examples, uh, one of the ones that always comes up is Knights Capital, who um, manually deployed um, software to eight of their, their trading servers. Um, one of those servers was going very wrong. 
Um, and, and after about 45 minutes of um, stumbling around, scratching their heads and trying to work out what had gone wrong, uh, they eventually pulled the plug on, on their entire platform, by which point they were about $1.3 billion short and about $1.3 billion long across various different stocks. Um, and that resulted in a, uh, a net loss of about half a billion dollars um, in 45 minutes because of um, release processes going wrong. Well, one thing that's implied by uh, doing releases uh, a lot more often is, of course, you're, in your traditional setting, you would do your releases out of hours, maybe at the weekends, uh, in the middle of the night, whereas in the DevOps process, uh, because you're you're uh, releasing often and you're releasing small changes, you would quite, well, generally, you, you would do this during the day, uh, which is has a number of advantages and, and reduce the risk because the people who know about uh, what's going on are all there in the office already rather than having to say, okay, you're going to have to work overtime, you're going to have to work weekends, people might be tired if it's kind of three o'clock in the morning and, and things aren't going that well, whereas if you do it while people are, it, uh, are there in the, in the day, then you've got your experts there, people are, are kind of fresh, ready to go, you, you've got everything you need, so the, the risk is reduced. Yeah, and of course, if you're a global business, it's not three o'clock everywhere somewhere someone's awake you know working with a company based out of new york there was always the the australians were the ones that always suffered because it was always done on new york time and then the and and the guys in australia had to sort of um suck it up a little bit but um you know you by doing by doing the sort of canary deployments by releasing to small um groups of users one at a time by doing little and often at various times you sort of you just reduce all of that and of of course with with your global company there is no downtime because somewhere in the world someone is always trying to use your your system so being able to kind of deploy at any point without any noticeable interruption to your users is is a real advantage let's say um i'm a a typical SME with a fairly typical sort of uh, reliance on digital tech and sort of fairly sort of average data needs, whatever that might be. Let's just say there's a generic company here, and we've heard about DevOps. What's the next step? How do how do we start changing the the company process? You come and speak to us for a start. Um, <laughs> um, there there is no silver bullet really. Um, it's it's it is lots of small changes across the organisation. Um, we, we've taken the approach that we, we will audit a business, we will look at how the various different um, work units interact with each other and, and do an assessment, work out where those small incremental changes can be made, where those benefits can be realised. And you know, every organisation is different, so there's always, um, there's always constraints, be they political, be they budgetary um, or, or, or else. Um, so... You know, it, it's about considering that, considering what benefits can be made, and then ad- addressing the areas where the most benefit can be made. Tim, you're a consultant, so where do you find most, uh, I suppose, resistance from stakeholders, or, or the most difficult ways to try and explain the process to stakeholders who who aren't familiar with DevOps? Yeah, I, I think that touches on a really important point. It's it's you have to have buy-in uh, from uh, your stakeholders at the top that that this is this is the way to go. Uh, often, the, the changes that you're looking to make, uh, the the payback on them can seem like it's not not immediate, uh, and you're asking for a lot of investment. For example, the the automation that we talked about, it does take time to automate stuff, but then you reap the benefits again and again and again and again. 
so it's I think it's it's important to get that, that stakeholder buy-in, but also once you st- uh, start to uh, pull your your teams together, they need to understand uh, why why the change because. Let's be honest. People people don't like change. They they like their particular way of working that they're comfortable with, and uh, sort of trying to force that on on a, a team of people uh, can can meet with real resistance. So they need to understand what what you're trying to do as an organisation. I heard a great phrase about that. That sort of summed that up once, which was: people love the idea of change. The bit they don't like is doing things differently. Yes. Yeah. Right. So so there is a. There's a sort of cultural, sort of very human element here in getting this working in your business. It's not like the old, you know, I, I suppose people's fear is you, you call in the management consultants and they come in, they sack half the workforce and they put up more cubicles. Or they, they do something that, you know, damages that working environment. And, and really what you need to do here is try and improve the employee experience because ultimately that is going to transform the business performance. Really. Often you, you're trying to effectively uh, take an operations team and a development team who may have, uh, have been at war effectively for, for quite some time with lots of kind of finger pointing and and uh, when things go wrong, whose fault was it? And you're trying to combine those two groups of people uh, who I think, is, as we've touched on before, uh, one of them is trying to stop change and the other one is is trying to create change. So merging those teams together can, can be quite quite challenging. And that's, that's where the business buy-in comes into it because if the business motivates them, both groups of people in the same way, i.e. increased sales or increased throughput on the platform or something like this, gives both sets of people the same target, the same business driver, then that should become easier because their their management then has to break those walls down and you know it's quite from an it somebody in it's point of view i think most devs get it now you know we're, we're at a point where it's actually um not hard to convince the technical folks to come on board because the 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 ways the new ways of working are actually really interesting you know the tooling's great it's it's pretty mature now um people um, people by want tooling, to, sorry to interrupt yeah, but by yeah. tooling just for those People at home that are suddenly uh, imagining that we're we've got a room full of machines. Yeah, oh, I suppose we do computers. So. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the um, the sort of the software products and the tools that the developers need to skill themselves up in now are, are pretty mature. They're 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 really good. They're, the learning curve's not too steep in most cases and um you know and they've all got cool names um, <laughs> <laughs> um so you know i think de- devs are, are are curious problem solvers and and so are people from ops people in it are curious problem solvers by their nature so you give them a new problem to solve can you deliver can you do this can you do that here's some great tooling here's some interesting stuff here's an opportunity to learn new skills you're not going to have trouble motivating your it team to um to do that and if you do quite frankly you've got the wrong IT team, you know, because they're not curious, they're not problem solvers, in which case they're not going to be much good in any <laughs> any instance. One of the other ways and key motivators for often for the ops team specifically is actually you reduce the heroics required to keep systems online. So if you look at a traditional ops department, often you have key people in that department who can't go on holiday without taking their phone with them. They're working all hours every time there's a new release. Um, night shifts are a point of regularity rather than the exception as you adopt a devops process those things should go away they're meant to be measured looked at and examined so they can go away because they're a form of waste what i mean by that is anything that impedes value being delivered if your key resource is exhausted you're not going to get the best out of them
this is a fascinating topic and the clock is running down. So I have one last question for everyone, which is we heard briefly that data ops is a thing. And I've heard a lot recently about DesOps, uh, who I assumed was a sort of lounge singer from the 1970s. Uh, put with the ch- no, I'm showing my age again. That's Des O'Connor. It was a Des O'Connor. Anyone remember him? Yeah. A- ask your parents about <laughs> Des. O- oh, I can't believe this is happening to me again. Um, so what is next? It's 2020. Okay, we're going to be doing a show in 20 in January 2021. I hope so. If you haven't changed the the locks uh, by then, or the aircon. Yeah, <laughs> stop me getting in. So, in the show in 2021, are we still going to be talking about DesOps, or is there a new movement on the horizon? Uh, DesOps is an interesting one. Um, it's the design agencies and design departments trying to elevate their position as a stakeholder within the process. It's essentially still part of that DevOps process in the end. If you actually look at all the articles talking about it, they show two halves of the same thing. Um, the big conversation point you will see a lot about is anything that integrates AI into this DevOps flow. Um, and that, at the moment, it's falling under the banner of data ops uh, because it requires large sets of data to be of value and to work. Um, but the management of uh, models the, and uh, trained models specifically for machine learning and how those get deployed into environments um, is becoming a bigger topic around this. There's a lot of people doing good work. There's a lot of interesting things going on. This is very much a area of and field that's in constant flux. It's constantly being contributed to from the open source world. Um, but it certainly hasn't settled down into a mature position at this point. I mean, to sort of build on your Stranger Things references you keep making, the other creepy thing that's starting to emerge is um, the use of AI in the pipeline to automatically fix software problems. So this is where people are trying to write routines and, and create models that can fix bugs, which is which is really kind of creepy because that means your software is going to start to evolve and then I, I get all sorts of Terminator, Skynet-type flashbacks. You say, maybe we cross over there generationally. But, uh, you know. just, just to interject, it's not trying to. They've succeeded. Yeah. So if we look at what Facebook have going right now, they, based on their automated test suites, which I hasten to add are human-generated, just to be clear, um, they n- identify errors, look back at a back catalogue of fixes that have been produced and suggest fixes to the developer who introduced the error and send them the changed code so they can examine it, review it, and then commit it. Okay. It's, it's amazing. It's yeah. really incredible stuff. Uh, you know, it's obviously not mainstream, your SME example. It's a long way from those guys. But the way tooling evolves, and I say like the tools are maturing, the tools are getting better, it's just a matter of time before you can buy that for a 15-buck license. It's just... It's, it's insane. And there's, I, it's, I, I went to a lecture um, a while ago about uh, neural networks and how they work. And the, the, <laughs> That's an interesting one, how they work. Does anybody know how they work? Because my understanding is... <laughs> it's, well, they all work the same way, which is interesting. It's to do with yeah. probability and notes. black box in the middle. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I may have snoozed in parts, but I think the important... 
What was really interesting about it is the fact that you can use this to start identifying what should happen as opposed to what has happened. And presumably that's the kind of technology we're going to see in these AI sort of auto bug fixes. Yeah, and I think, I think some of the cloud platforms are already doing a bit of that where they're identifying, you know, increases in error rates, increases in, in page hits, um, you know, suggesting fixes, trying to spot issues with how, how the platform works in production. Um, so you know that that's really helpful, and it, it it's not fixing the problems itself. It's just suggesting where changes might need to be made, or where efficiencies can be made. And that's uh, really where uh, AI is is useful, and, and sort of the extension of the automation. Because when you're deploying every kind of twelve seconds, there's a lot of data flowing through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be impossible for kind of humans to to detect those kind of patterns. And uh, sort of AI and machine learning can really add value there. Okay, good. Well, that's it, I'm afraid, for this episode, uh, part two of DevOps uh, for the EG Way uh, podcast. Um, I'd like to thank for joining us today uh, the team of thank. They are humans. Some of them are all augmented with cybernetic parts, I think. Uh, it's, it's fair, mostly John. It's, it's fair to say. And on that front, yes, John Nicholson, CTO. Thank you. Uh, and that's uh, human flesh grown over a metal endoskeleton. And... Oh, yes. That's, that's, called, the, that's the T in CTO, isn't it? You've Chief got, Terminating Officer. Yeah. That's, <laughs> you know it. <laughs> <laughs> and there is Alan Jackson, Chief Operating Officer. Tim Nash, Consultant. Thank you. And also Chris Pond, Co-Founder and CEO. Thanks very much. And thank you for joining us. Join us next time on the EG Way podcast. Find us online at EG dot com or on twitter at eg limited and if you want to find out this is real we are actually not ai avatars we're actually real people we're going to wave at the camera and say hi hello Hello. there we go and we're going to say happy new year last time for january this is our last january podcast i think so happy new year hey thank you